All right. Well, let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you, first of all, for your word, for your divinely inspired word that we could come and, and open our hearts by your Holy Spirit, that you would come and instruct us. And we pray for that right now. Father, give us ears to hear, eyes to see, and hearts that truly want to understand what it is you have for us individually this morning, what you have for us as a church. So we commit this time to you, Father, and, and thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. We've been in John chapter 7. Last week, we uh, started chapter 7 looking at Jesus' unbelieving brothers. Remember, they were encouraging him, Jesus, you, you need to take the show on the road. You need to take this thing down to Jerusalem, Jesus. They didn't believe in him, but they saw that, you know, it's like, wow, you know, Jesus, you do some pretty remarkable things, and, you know, you're not going to get a lot of traction up here in Galilee. You need to go down to Judea. You need to go down and to where the, the crowds are and where the really important people are, is sort of what's implied in all of that. And, and Jesus said, you know, my time, not my hour, but my time has not yet come. Remember, we looked at that. The Greek word for hours, hora, and the Greek word for time is kairos. And he said, my opportunity is not yet come. And so he held back. But then he went to the feast and it said they were looking for him at the feast and they didn't find him because he wasn't with the contingent that he would normally go with. He held back because he knew that they were wanting to kill him. And so he goes down to Jerusalem and he stands up at the feast and he begins to teach the people. And we see that he immediately runs into a lot of opposition. We were talking about uh, the different forms of opposition that he had, the people that were uh, sort of uh, condescending with their opposition to him, the people that were just simply ignorant, but not real ignorance, really more of a willful ignorance of, of who he was, what he was about. And the people kept dividing. Every time he would say something, the people would divide. Say, some would say, well, maybe, maybe this is the Messiah. Maybe this is him. And there's no, 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 no. He, it couldn't be. He's, uh, just, he's this guy from Galilee. And, and everywhere that Jesus went, he was causing people to divide over who he was, what he was about. And that's the same as it is today. I mean, there's power in the name of Jesus. If you don't believe that, just say the name of Jesus just a little bit above the din in a crowded restaurant and see how quiet it gets around your table. He does still divide on purpose because he forces us to become uncomfortable with him. He forces us to be confronted with the truth of who he is, of what Messiah in his presentation of Messiah, not our ideas of Messiah are. He didn't fit the people's idea of who Messiah ought to be. They wanted a guy, as we talked about when he fed the 5,000, they wanted to take him off to Jerusalem at that time. And they wanted a, a, a Messiah that would be after their own liking, that would throw off the yoke of Rome and give them peace now, save now. Remember Hosanna uh, back at that time. And, and he said, no, 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 that's not what I'm about. So here, uh, as we get into uh, the latter part of chapter 7, we're not going to start here. We're actually going to start in Exodus chapter 17 this morning. Uh, so if you have a Bible with you or a smartphone, <laughs> open it up to Exodus chapter 17. We're going to look at some things here, and then we're going to go back to John chapter 7 and, and look there at some things that really kind of line up. Uh, by way of background, 
Israel, the nation, had been, remember, they went down to Egypt and they prospered in the land of Egypt. And then it says that there was a Pharaoh that was raised up that knew not Joseph and he didn't know about, and they grew, they multiplied and they did what God told them to do. They were fruitful and they multiplied. And they, it started out as, as essentially 12 sons and a tribes uh, in that sense and ended up being a couple of million people. And uh, the Pharaoh was threatened by that, so he put them into slavery and had them making bricks and, and all and working on his projects. And then they began to persecute these Hebrew slaves and they were making bricks without straw now and they were, had cruel taskmasters. And Moses, if you remember, if you know the story, he was raised up to deliver the children of Israel from the hand of Pharaoh and that's what happened. And uh, they went through the 10 plagues and then were delivered out of the land with the last plague, the plague of death, where they got the Passover, where the angel of death passed over the Hebrews who had put the blood of the lamb on the door posts and the lintel there and uh, off they went and they got up to the Red Sea and the Lord in this cloud of smoke, he leads before them and he parts the sea and he takes them into the wilderness. Well, there, because of their disobedience, remember, they went into the land. They got about 11 days out to a place called Kadesh Barnea, and, and they sent spies into the land. They spied out the land, the land that God had promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, their fathers. And they came back with a false report and said, no, 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 we were like grasshoppers in their sight, and we just, there's no way we can take this land, Moses. And two guys, Caleb and Joshua, said, yeah, we can do it. Why? Because God said so. And they simply were walking by faith. They were the two faithful of the bunch there in that time. Well, God pronounced judgment against the people. At first, he was going to destroy them, and Moses hit the ground, got on his face before God and said, don't do that. Please, you know, spare them, spare their lives. And, and God did. And then God said, all right, you will wander in this wilderness for 40 years, one year for every day that the spies were in the land. And, that, and he said, and if you're over 20 years old, you're not going into the promised land. You're going to die out here in this wilderness. And that's exactly what happened. Well, Going forward here, as they're in the wilderness, we see this account about water from a rock in Exodus chapter 17 while they're wandering out there. And it says in verse 1, Then all the congregation of the children of Israel set out on their journey from the wilderness of sin, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped in Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people contended with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. So Moses said to them, why do you contend with me? Why do you tempt the Lord? And the people thirsted there for water, and the people complained against Moses and said, Why is it you have brought us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So the people have come to a place, they're being challenged, they get, uh, sort of get their backs against the wall, they, they don't see that, they're really not trusting that God has this. Uh, I mean, we read the story of the end from the beginning, and so we kind of think, well, you know, they're just being kind of foolish and all that. But they didn't have any water. I mean, here's a couple of million people, and they need water, and there is no water. When it talks about wilderness, in this context, you're not talking about um, out in the woods, like we would think in the wilderness. There is nothing in the wilderness. I mean, I've been out in the wilderness down in this area, and there is nothing. I sat on a mountaintop in the wilderness of Judea, in the land, but, but still in the same region. And I sat there and prayed for like an hour and a half because, and it was kind of cool because there was virtually nothing to do. 
I mean, there's nothing to look at. There was no, there's rocks and that's it. And maybe some lizards. That's it. <laughs> and, and not even anything growing out there. And so when these people are out in the wilderness, they're not seeing, they're seeing that there is nothing to sustain life out here, and there isn't. And they're concerned, and so they're coming against Moses here, and, and Moses is saying, why are you contending with me? I, look, it's not my fault, guys. I didn't, yeah, I didn't do this. God is leading us out here, and there has to be a place where they would have to trust God. And that's exactly why the Lord and Moses are considering that they're contending now with him. Um, Verse 3, and, and the, the people thirsted there for water, and the people complained against Moses and said, Why have you brought us out of Egypt to kill our children, us and our children and our livestock with thirst? And so Moses cried out to the Lord, saying, What shall I do with this people? They're almost ready to stone me. I, when I was reading this, it, it, I was preparing for this morning, and I kind of chuckled to myself with Moses saying, They're almost ready to stone me. And I thought, Welcome to the ministry, Moses. Uh, <laughs> There are times, uh, I say that in jest, but um, you know, sometimes when you're in the people business, it can be difficult. And here Moses is getting some real difficulty from these people. Verse 5, and the Lord said to Moses, go before the people and take with you some of the elders of Israel. Also taking your hand, your rod, uh, with which you struck the river, and go. Behold, I will stand before you, pay attention to this, I will stand before you there on the rock, in Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water will come out of it that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. So he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the con con contention of the children of Israel, and because they tempted the Lord, saying, Is the Lord not uh, among us or not? So Massa means tempted, and Meribah means contention. I mean, that's what Moses named the place because that's what happened. The people were contending with God. Uh, simply, they were contending with uh, his man, Moses, and, and by doing so, they were contending with God. And, and they're essentially, their complaint was about water, but it went deeper than that. And the, the passage here in, in verse 7 ends with, with, is the Lord among us? Or not. Hang on to that because we see that thread as we look at the passage we're going to look at this morning as well. Uh, interesting, 40 years later, Moses would, the people would be thirsty again. This rock followed them around. And uh, Moses was told to speak to the rock to bring forth water. And Moses was really upset with the people at this point. I mean, he'd had 40 years of griping and complaining. I mean, uh, I know what it's like to be around one person that just wants to complain a lot, and sometimes it gets kind of tiring, but he's got like a couple million people, and all they do is complain every time he turns around, and he's just like really upset with these people, and he gets up to the rock, and instead of speaking to it, he grabs Aaron's rod, right? It's got flowers, almond flowers on it, and twigs and stuff. He grabs Aaron's rod and he starts to beat the rock. He beats it a couple of times, probably petals flying, and seeing these people, I just can't believe what you're doing. And he's complaining about against the people. What's interesting about that is God gives the water because he never punishes the people for the mistakes of his, uh, of his servants. And so he gives the water, but he tells Moses, you can't go into the land because you've done this thing because you have profaned me. 
uh, God's a holy God. And he says, you have made this an unholy thing. You have uh, turned what was supposed to be my directive into a, a place for you to get angry and to essentially beat the sheep, beat the people. Something that um, the man that discipled me in the pastorate for many years, went to be with the Lord here a year ago, uh, would constantly say, you know what? You can never, ever beat the sheep. Don't do it. Don't do it. If there's anything you don't want to do as a leader, as a pastor, is to come down on God's people. You need to have grace. And it's not just for leaders, guys. We need to have grace for one another. It's so easy to, to get to a point where we've had it. I just can't handle that person anymore. You know, if they do that one more time, you know, and we can get on this whole deal and take ourselves directly out of God's will. And instead of having grace to begin to complain and to, to get, you know, God, how come you're, and you know, you can just get into this whole deal. And I'll tell you what, it's a slippery slope. And if you're dealing with a person, a difficult person, he didn't say that we weren't going to deal with difficult people. He, as a matter of fact, he says it's easy to love who, those who are lovable. Where the real test comes in as far as walking in the spirit, we'll talk about that later on, is when we're dealing with people that aren't so lovable, huh? When we're dealing with people that maybe get under our, our skin a little bit and, and maybe kind of irritate. But he says, no, I want you to love that's the language of the covenant. It is the language of heaven, guys. Love. You've got to know that if he loves me, I, I'm constantly reminded that his love for me is poured out. And I, I know me and I know how undeserving I am of his love. And if I'm undeserving of his love and you're acting in a way that's undeserving, then how should I ought to treat you? So, 40 years went by, Moses struck the rock, didn't go into the land of Canaan, but God still brought forth the water and he still took the people into the land. Those who were under 20 years old and those who were born out in the wilderness went in. The rest of them died out there as a judgment against them for their unbelief. That's what this is about. It's all about unbelief. And the people walked in unbelief. That's why they said, is the Lord with us or not? They weren't believing that God had this. God had, he knew that there was no water and that he was gonna move. And so they began to question him and to sort of call him down. Uh, because of it. And that was what happened. So with that, we're going to get into John chapter 7. And the second part of this, uh, is anyone thirsty? First part, water from a rock. The second part here that we're going to look at is, uh, I've simply called it, is anyone thirsty? Now, last week we ended in John chapter 7, verse 36, but I'm going to back up to verse 32 here so we can catch the context and catch the flow of what's going on with Jesus as he's here in Jerusalem now at the feast. Verse 32, the Pharisees heard the crowd murmuring these things concerning him. They were divided, as we talked about. Uh, and the Pharisees and the chief priests sent officers to take him. Then Jesus said to them, I shall be with you a little while longer, and then I go to him who sent me. And you seek me, you will seek me and not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. Interesting. There's two interpretations on this. And I'll just throw them both out there. It's up for grabs. Believe whichever one you'd like. There's not like anything you know, super important depends on it. One is that Jesus was talking about when he would be glorified. Then when he would be crucified, resurrected, and go to be with the Father. To sit at the right hand of the Father. And you could look at that, and that makes sense. It fits the context. Another is if you look at the tenses here, 
and the context here is they've sent, they've sent the cops out for him. You know, this is they sent officers. They sent a military contingent out to capture Jesus and to bring him back to the leaders here because they were, again, he knew that they wanted to kill him and they were upset. And so it says that they, they sent officers to take him in verse 32 and Jesus says to them, present tense, I shall be with you a little while longer. And the word then in the second half of this sentence is inserted. If we take it out, it says, and I go to him who sent me, present tense, still. While you seek me, you will seek me and not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. And you could look at this. He's, he's addressing these officers, these guys that came to capture him. And he knows they're not going to take him because his hour hasn't come. It's not time for him. To, he's got six more months. We looked at that last week. This is six months out from when he was dealing with the people up in Capernaum in chapter six, six months before he would go to that final feast to the Passover in Jerusalem the following spring where he would be taken and crucified and resurrected and so on. And so he knows it's not his time and he tells these people, you know what? You seek me. Sorry, I'll be with you a little while longer and I go to him who sent me. And you could look at it as, as he's simply just stating the fact. And these guys are going, what are you talking about? You're 10 feet away from me. I, what do you mean? I, you, I, you, wait. And, and it confuses the people, the religious leaders there in verse 35. And again, you could take either one of those interpretations. Either he's talking about going to the cross or he's basically telling these guys, go ahead, try to get me. You're not gonna. And um, verse 35, then the Jews said among themselves, where does he intend to go that we shall not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? So, you know, they're, they're, so he's talking about leaving. They don't understand. They're, is he going to go teach the Gentiles? What's going on with this guy? What is this thing that he said? You'll seek me and not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. Verse 37. On the last day, and this is where we're going to pick up this morning, that was simply to bring us up to speed with what's going on with him in the crowd and with the officers. Uh, on the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, and now remember, and it says here that he cried out. He went to the feast in secret, right? And he goes up in the middle of the week and he cries out prior, earlier in chapter 7, when he cries out and he begins to, to speak to the people. And now... Here at the last day, the great day of the feast, he cries out again and he says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Interesting. Remember last week we talked about this is during the Feast of Tabernacles. And I'm going to spend a little time and talk about the Feast of Tabernacles because it's significant and it bears a lot of weight on this passage and on these statements of Jesus. It was also called, the, the, the Hebrew word is sekoth, or the Feast of Booths, or the ingathering, because this is in the fall, and it's after the harvest, when they were gathering all the grains and all of the produce, and uh, it was a celebration. This was the seventh feast in Israel. This was the last of the great feasts. Uh, they, it was, they were called the Moadim. They were the sacred festivals of Israel. And here at Tabernacles, it's the, the one that the people would come, and it was an eight-day. Some people say seven, some say eight. Take your pick again. Uh, they say it was a seven-day feast, and then the eighth day was a great day, and so on. I see it as being one feast in eight days is how I'm going to teach it. Again, uh, take your pick. It's not going to make a lot of difference. But uh, anyway... 
But what happened with the people is the people would come, they would travel to Jerusalem, and this was a huge celebration. This was like a big, huge family camp, if you want. Uh, you know, it was a big deal for these people. I mean, this is an agrarian society. They don't have a lot, and they look forward to these feasts. They would be able to visit with old friends. They would be able to see extended family. They would be able to celebrate and participate in the rituals that each feast represented. This particular feast represented the wilderness wanderings for Israel. It was when they looked back, the Feast of Tabernacles, they would build these little booths, these little lean-tos. They'd go outside their house or up on their roof, and they'd build these little stick lean-tos. Now, when they wove the roof of the lean-to, they had to leave ample space so that when they lied down in there at night, especially with their kids, that they'd be able to look up and see the stars through the, the loosely woven sticks that they did this with. Uh, and think about it. I mean, think about, I was looking at this. I remembered going out. I had an old 57 Chevy pickup truck. And uh, I lived on a ranch in southern Oregon, way up out of town, out in the middle of nowhere. And I would take my kids out. They were like six and eight years old. And we would go out at night and lay in the bed of my truck and just look up at the stars. I mean, it was glorious. And my kids would, Daddy, look, there's a, a satellite going. And we, it was dark enough. When it's dark enough, you can see satellites going through by it. And they're, they're just really cooking across the sky in their orbit. And, and so we would spend time out there. And it would be kind of like that, the special time with uh, perhaps parents and their kids and looking up and remembering as they see all the stars, this canopy of stars, remembering the promise that God had made to Abraham and telling their kids about it. They didn't have books. They communicated these things through the oral traditions. And so they would be going through and they would be educating their kids during this week long camp out there outside the house. Do you remember going outside the house and camping in the yard? I mean, that was fun. That was just a great time. And so, again, it's just, there's a whole festive atmosphere. This is not like the, the last day was a very solemn thing, but this whole week-long deal was a great time for families. And they would have these things. They would have to weave the walls of their little lean-tos loosely so that when the wind blew, it would blow through them and it would show them and it would illustrate to them the perils that their fathers had had out in the wilderness during that 40 years of wandering and, and that God spared them miraculously and that he covered them and protected them, and it would be a great time. Well, while they were doing that, um, this festival was going on, and like I said, it, the last day was called a holy convocation. And the word, it's interesting, uh, I'm not going to try to go to the Hebrew word here, but it translates uh, as ecclesia. Uh, it, the, the word for church in the New Testament, or called out ones, is ecclesia. It's a Greek word that means called out ones, set apart ones. And what God is saying to these people is on the eighth day, I want you to hold a holy convocation, a holy gathering, and it would be a solemn gathering so that they would cap off this feast. The great day of the feast, they would be doing some things that were different from what they did every other day. And we'll talk about that here as we go. So needless to say, this involved all of the priests, okay? Remember, the priests were divided into two lots. There was the sons of Aaron, and they were the ones who carried out the priestly duties. They were the, actually the ones that did the sacrifices and the te temple ordinances and did all that. And then there were the Levites. They were, they were all from the tribe of Levi, but only the sons of Aaron could handle the actual priestly functions. The rest, the Levites, were support staff, if you would. They were the guys that were behind the scenes taking care of all the logistics and all of that. And so at this time, in Jesus' day, there were probably about 450 priests. 
and supporting Levites. So there is a huge group of guys that are serving. I mean, this is, it's, it's overtime for this week for these guys. They are all working and they are all carrying out the priestly ordinances. Every day they would start out the week with 13 bullocks, which is a steer, and they would sacrifice 13 the first day and then, dis- then diminish it by one every day until at the end of the feast, they're sacrificing seven bulls, seven young bullocks uh, on the altar as they went. Again, hugely complicated and, and uh, orchestrated sacrificial things going on. But the things that were going on with the people were really interesting, fascinating as well. So the people would get up on a typical day during the Feast of Tabernacles. They would get up at daybreak and they would dress for the festival. So they would have festival garb on. And, and again, this, these were customs that the people had adopted over the years. And, and again, it, yeah, this, as a matter of fact, the, the, the Sadducees disagreed with a lot of this because they said it's not in the Torah. But the people had adopted these customs and they had taken this feast and they, were, they had built this whole deal about worshiping Yahweh around it. And so they would leave at daybreak and they would go up to the temple mount. They would go up to the temple. Now at that point, they would divide into three groups. One group would stay and attend and attend to and attend the morning sacrifice at the temple on the temple mount. Another group would go in procession with singing, with flutists and all. They would be singing these Hallel Psalms. Psalm 113 to 118 are called the Hallel Psalms. Okay, and and you can look in there yourself and and look at the Psalms 113 to 118. These were songs that were called the Hallel Psalms because they would take, they would sing these and they would chant these during these feasts. And in between the lines, the people would all shout Hallel Jah. And it was praise God. That's where we get the word Hallelujah from from the Hallel Psalms. And these were being sung as these people went in procession. So the second group would go west to a little, uh, it was a settlement called Moza. And to the west of, of Jerusalem, it's a pretty decently wooded area. And there they would cut, pal- uh, cut willow branches and come back and they would adorn the altar inside the temple uh, with these branches. And so they would have this whole ornate thing. They would go down to Moses, they would be singing, they would be uh, going through, and the, the Levites would be leading off, they would sing a line and then the people would sing a line and they would all shout uh, hallelujah in that sense. And, and it was just this great scene. Well, there was a third group now, and bear with me. I'm getting there. Uh, you're, well, what does this have to do with Jesus standing up there and saying, if anybody thirsts? Well, there's a lot that has to do with it. So there's a third group now that would take, and uh, they would take part in a, a more interesting service, in my opinion. Uh, to the sound of music, a procession started from the temple and went south. And they likely went along what was called the Herodian Street. We'll look at that in a minute. Um, and they would sing these psalms as they went, and they would follow. There would be probably a group of priests, but one priest would have a golden pitcher, okay? He would have a golden pitcher in his hands, and they would travel south along, right along the city of David, through the city, uh, south of the Temple Mount, and go down to what was known as the Pool of Siloam, okay? Nobody knew where this pool was until 2004 when they unearthed it. I mean, it's a very recent archaeological dig, 
uh, and it's a fascinating place. I've been there a couple of times, and uh, it's just a really interesting place. I mentioned last week that only part of it has been excavated because there's a property line there that I think it's the Greek Orthodox Church owns the, the property on the other side of the fence, and they won't let anybody dig it out. So you've got just this little pool with these great big huge grand stairs and all this that goes down, and there's this little dinky pool that... It's like you get right up to the edge of it and you go, wow, what's that? There's a fence, a cyclone fence. <laughs> it's a really interesting place. At any rate, so they would travel down to the Pool of Siloam. And th as they're singing, they're, this whole procession is going down. Uh, they go past the city of David uh, and to, uh, again, well, let's go to the, this slide here. Uh, if you look at right, kind of in the center on the right, there's the temple. I, I've shown a little box approximately where the temple mount would be. And then in the yellow type, there's Kidron on the right, and then in the middle, Tyropian, and then on the bottom left is Hinnom. Those are the three valleys in Jerusalem. And the reason I bring those up is if you were to go down along the east side of the temple mount, you would go right into the, the Kidron Valley. And it was much deeper back in the first century than it is now. There's streets that go along in there at this point. But as the Kidron wound to the south, and you see that I have a little north sign there. As the Kidron wound to the south, there was a, the Tyropian Valley is an interesting place. It's almost non-existent now, but at that time it was more of a depression. It wasn't like a deep valley, but it was a low spot. And Herod built a canal that was for drainage from the Temple Mount along that area. So... Anyway, the Pool of Siloam was right at the convergence of the Tyropian Valley and the Kidron Valley, and that's where they found this thing. Interestingly enough, it was built by King Hezekiah back uh, when he was fearful that the Assyrians were going to come and they were going to attack Jerusalem. He went to the springs, the Gihon Springs, and he built a tunnel. You've heard of Hezekiah's tunnel before. He built a tunnel from the springs all the way down to the Pool of Siloam, and it was to bring water inside the city gates because if there was an army that attacked, they wanted to be able to still have water available to them. Let's go to the next one, please. So the people are following this one priest, and you see the red line here on this where I have the temple up in the background. Uh, a little hard to see because of like, could you turn down the house lights there, Richard? Or the stage lights? Yeah, a little hard to see, but the temple and then this, this red line was called the Herodian Street. And if you look there to the right of the street, there's sort of a, a wedge-shaped piece that's fenced in or walled in on all sides. That's the city of David. That's the old city uh, there right in the center of the slide. And that's where David built his palace before the temple was built. That's the oldest part of Jerusalem. It still exists today. It's a great place to go and visit. Well, they would go along to the, the west of that and this, this uh, Herodian Street, which was right next to this drainage canal that Herod built, and they would go down to the Pool of Siloam. So the guys, the priests would go down, one guy with a golden pitcher and a huge throng of people that were singing and doing this whole festive deal every day of the feast. They would go down to the Pool of Siloam, the priest would fill the pitcher, and then he would have to make it back up to the Temple Mount. Let's go to the next slide. Uh, this is what it looks like today. Uh, like I said, a little tiny pool, lots of uh, archaeology there. Uh, you could go up in the background, you see some stairs, kind of go around the corner, and the exit of Hezekiah's tunnel is right there. Uh, stood at, uh, I could have gone through the tunnel, but didn't, opted not to. 
uh, I didn't have waders. The water was running high when I was there. It was in the spring. But uh, went to the, the headwaters and then also went to where it came out when I went to the Pool of Siloam. It's a fascinating place. A great engineering marvel for that day for them to be able to actually tunnel through the rock to bring these springs into the city and into this pool. So the priests then, on their way back, they would come up to the temple and they would approach what was, it was the south gate of the temple. It was called the water gate. Yeah, at Nixon, it wasn't original there. It was something that was uh, brought about. That was actually how this name, this, this gate of the city, the south gate of the city got, was named the water gate because of this processional. And they would be coming back up. Now, remember, this, this whole feast is going on. The people have gone down to Mosa. They're getting the branches. They're coming back up, and they're decorating and, and putting the branches around the altar there in the court of the priests and so on. The people are following the priest back up. He goes through the water gate, and they stop, but the priest goes through. And as he is going, as he's approaching, the Levites are inside, and they're blowing trumpets, and the shofars, remember the the... The, the big ram horns that they use, they're called shofars. And so this, this whole deal, you've got to realize this is a high-pitched scene. There's a lot going on. There's a lot of bustle. And the people are excited. There's 100,000 people probably surrounding this whole Temple Mount, going up onto the hills around the temple, looking down on it and seeing these things go on. And they're all singing. They're all partying. They're all dressed in festive gear. And so you've got this whole scene going on. Well... Jesus is at the feast. Jesus is here in the temple area while this is happening. So the priest, now this is really where it gets really interesting, guys. Uh, the priest at that point, he would, the, the guy with the water, he would go through uh, and into the, the court of the priest, and he would be joined by another priest who had a similar golden pitcher, but that was filled with wine. And what that was for was for the drink offering. Now, very often, well, what they had, what was prescribed by God in these offerings was when they did the animal sacrifice offerings, they would do a drink offering simultaneously. And the wine was used, in, and it's not my opinion. I mean, we know what wine is symbolic of here in the New Testament. Jesus, the night before he went to the cross, as he took the wine, he said, take and drink this. This is my blood of the new covenant. Take, drink it in remembrance of me. Remember that. Well, so now here we have one priest has water, one priest has blood. And this is all in, it's, it's all in remembrance. It's typical of the life-sustaining water from the rock at Horeb. This is that part, of, this part of the feast is in remembrance of that, that thing that we read about when we first started this morning. It's in remembrance of that part of the feast. They are celebrating the fact that God sustained Israel with this miraculous water from a rock. And, and they're rejoicing. This whole feast, again, it's about the wilderness wanderings. And this part of the feast would be about specifically about how he spared the people and how he miraculously gave them water. So that's what's going on. These two priests, now the two priests come together, one with the wine and one with the water, and they go up the slope of the altar. It had a slanted one side, and they're right there in the, in the temple proper now. And they go up on top of this thing and there would be two silver bowls on top. And they had holes in the bottom and a, a sort of a deal that would carry the, the liquid down. One was on the east side, one was on the west side of the altar. It set them up there just for this particular ceremony. Remember, the people are still singing. 
And the people are, and, and they're singing out to the Lord. They're singing these, these psalms, which were songs to begin with. And, and they're, they're shouting hallelujah, hallel jah during this whole deal. And the Levites are leading them. The shofars are blowing. The trumpets are blowing. This is a scene. This is better than a Hollywood movie. I mean, I think about it. You guys ever see Ben-Hur with the big crowds and all that stuff? I mean, that's nothing. I mean, there's, like I said, there's probably 100,000 people here, and they're all joined into the same thing. So that's how it went. The priest that had the wine would pour the wine into this bowl that was on the east side of the altar. Remember a few weeks ago when we looked at uh, the, the tomb of Jesus being the fulfillment of the mercy seat where the blood was sprinkled seven times along what side? The east side. And so here the priest that has the wine, symbolic of the blood, is pouring it down on the east side of the altar. The priest that has the water is pouring it down the west side and it flows out onto the marble pavement at the base of the altar. Again, symbolic of God's faithfulness back in the times of the wilderness wanderings. Then you get to the last day the great day of the feast. They did this for seven days. And the people were just in a huge party atmosphere. They were celebrating God's faithfulness in their lives. The priests went down to the pool of Siloam, but they came up with an empty pitcher on the great day of the feast. No water was poured out. Two opinions about this. Number one, God had led the people after that 40 years into the land. They no longer had to rely upon the rock at Horeb for their water supply. Now they were in a land that was very well, uh, uh, there was a lot of water there in Canaan when they went in. They didn't have to look to miraculous means for their water. Now they were in the land. And so you could look at it that way. The other thing, and this is the, the, the opinion about this that I particularly believe, is there would be no water on that great day of the feast because they were looking for Messiah. And the people in looking for Messiah were still expressing that they were still thirsty. They were thirsty for God. They were thirsty for the sent one. They were thirsty for the anointed one that had been promised from ages past. During that great day of the feast, the... The people would sing, but they would add a line to Psalm 118. The first line, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. And the people would uh, be led by the Levites and singing this and doing this repeat chorus back and forth between the people and the Levitical priesthood. And it would be going back and forth. Thousands of people singing this. And uh, the people would say, Oh, then work now salvation, Yahweh, or Lord. Uh, so that it would be going back and forth. Again, this is the great day of the feast. This is a holy convocation. This is a quiet day. The hoopla is gone. The, the, the festival atmosphere is gone. This is a worship service. This is a time that would be very solemn. And on this great day of the feast, the people would be, their, their attention would be riveted to the priests. The priests would not pour the water out, but they would do a processional around the altar seven times to signify their, their defeat of Jericho when they came into the land. And yet they still knew that Messiah had been promised. And they would, 
this holy convocation would probably conclude uh, with a reading from Isaiah's scroll. Studied several different sources on this, and they all cite this passage as this is how this closed. There, remember, this whole thing is extra biblical stuff, so we're deep into interpretation here, but I believe it totally fits what's going on with what we're looking at in the Gospel of John this morning. They would read from Isaiah chapter 12, verse 3 Therefore, with joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And in that day you'll say, praise the Lord, call upon his name, declare his deeds among the peoples, make mention that his name is exalted, sing to the Lord, for he has done excellent things. This is known in all the earth. Cry out and shout, O inhabitant of Zion, for great is the Holy One of Israel in your midst. It was on this day the last day, the great day of the feast, that Jesus stood and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He was the fulfillment of water from that rock. He was the rock. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. At that point, I would imagine that there was a stunned silence in the temple grounds. A stunned silence among the priests. A stunned silence among the Levites and among the crowds of people. As this man, this rabbi from Galilee, shouts in the midst of this whole deal, in this holy convocation, as he has this lone voice in this quiet assembly. And he addresses the people with, come to me and drink. If you're thirsty, come to me. Fulfilling all that had been said. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, we'll look at that for a minute. Verses 1 through 4, the Apostle Paul wrote, Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud. That was the cloud that they followed around out during that 40 years. All passed through the sea. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food. Remember last week we talked about where Jesus said, I'm the bread of life. Or it was a couple weeks ago. Um, he said, I am the bread of life. They were saying, well, you know, after you fed the 5,000 men, Jesus, you know, they followed him to Capernaum the next day. And, and they said, you know, our fathers gave us manna. And he said, no, God gave you the manna. And I am the bread of life that came down from the Father. I am the, the one. I'm the fulfillment of the manna. Well, now what Paul is saying, he's, they all drank the same, or ate the same spiritual food. In verse 4, they all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. So in the middle of this commemoration, in the middle of this whole deal, there in the core, in the heart of Jerusalem, up on the Temple Mount, Jesus proclaims and he asserts that he is the fulfillment of all that had been said. He presents himself and gives an opportunity, gives an invitation to Israel to come to him and to drink. There's much to be said Now, back up a minute. In John 6, when we looked at that, in verse 63, 
Jesus said it's the spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. What he was saying is I am not talking to you about physical bread. This is not about profiting your flesh. That's what they wanted. He's saying the things that I'm talking to you about are spiritual. He's saying like bread nourishing your body. I am the bread of life. I will give you life. I will give life to your soul. I will give you spiritual life. We know in Ephesians chapter 2, it says we were born dead in our trespasses and sins. But God, being rich in the mercy that he has saved us, not on the basis of works that anybody should be able to boast, but by grace we have been saved through faith. Not of ourselves. It's a gift of God. And so... As Jesus hears with these people in verse 39, he says, But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing him would receive. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. So Jesus is speaking about the coming Spirit, who would come in just a few months. Because God cannot and will not dwell with sinful flesh. There had to be a transaction for man to be saved. There had to be a transaction for man to be redeemed, to be purchased. And Jesus, in going to that cross, paved the way for man to enjoy full-blown, unhindered access to God. And Jesus knew what his mission would be, and he went to this feast proclaiming the advent of the Spirit months before that would come about, because he needed to be able to, to reach people and to address them in the area of their need. That thirst that he talks about. Much could be said about the ministry of the Holy Spirit, and we will get there. There is a great deal. There's more about the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the Gospel of John than any other place. I mean, there's a lot in 1 Corinthians, uh, mostly brought about for correction purposes, but Jesus is very specific about the working of the Holy Spirit as we go on in the Gospel of John. However, he touches on it here, so we're going to touch on it here. Why would he say, is any man thirsty? Does anybody thirst? Think about it. We have basic needs as human beings. The first need, I think, is we probably, we put that first, is we need air. <laughs> That's an involuntary need. And I'm glad because the first time I'd get distracted, I, I'm one of those guys that goes squirrel, you know, and, and I, I'm off on a tangent somewhere. And the, it, my attention span just lapses and I'll go off on some deal. So if I'm ever talking to you and I go blank, sorry, I'm chasing a squirrel. But the point is, is that we have basic needs. I'm glad that those are involuntary ones. The one to breathe, you know, for our heart to beat. If that was voluntary, that'd be terrible. You know, I'd see a commercial with a really juicy looking hamburger, which doesn't exist because when you get to the window, they don't look like that. But I would see a picture and I'd be thinking about cheese. You know, wow, I want that hamburger. Oh, I forgot my, oh, you know, then I fall over dead. I, who needs a hamburger then? So that's a basic need, right? Well, there's also a basic need that we have over food for water. It's a basic prime need. It's also a voluntary need. So Jesus, remember, he's not talking about physical water. He's talking about spiritual water. He's talking about drink the water that I give you. And from your innermost being, from your heart, this torrent of water will proceed forth. We all have thirst. We all have spiritual thirst. 
made a, a short list, and you could fill it in with things of your liking, of things that we gorge ourselves with. Now, when I say gorge ourselves, the first thing that comes to mind is food. I evidence that. But what do we try to satisfy that thirst with? Maybe it's relationships. Oh, that person at work really understands me in the way that my husband or my wife doesn't. That pull. Oh, if I just had that person. You know, there's, we can get into all kinds of crazy things on that. Perhaps it's health. You know, as some, I know people in, in, in my family, they're like, and, and I use the term lovingly, gym rats. <laughs> and, and it's like, I've just got to work out, work out, work out, work out, work out. And, and that's fine. There's a, good, there's a place for that. But, but the Apostle Paul says bodily exercise profits a little, but it's the spiritual man. Perhaps it's possessions, materialism. That's a big one for Americans. In the years I've spent going to other countries with people that don't have as much stuff, I used to caution teenagers when I take teenagers into Mexico and say, look, don't feel sorry for these people. They got less stuff to get in the way. Because we can chase stuff. We can be thirsty for stuff. Huge problem. It doesn't take any, I mean, take one look around, drive one drive down the street, drugs. People thirsty, thirsty for the wrong stuff. And I would submit to you, brothers and sisters, they're not thirsty for drugs, they're thirsty for Jesus Christ. And they're trying to fill it with some temporary thing. Alcohol, same thing. The list could go on and on. People are thirsty for all kinds of things. But Jesus says, take the water that I want to give you. Take my water. Take my nourishment. Take the spiritual water. And, and, uh, and in taking that in, from your innermost being will gush forth torrents of living water. You will be made alive. Interesting, the way that that statement is, is constructed in the Greek, the tense is a, is a present continual tense. As he's saying, let him be coming to me. Let him be thirsting for me. It's a continual thing. It's not like you drink of Jesus once and you go, thank you very much, and then you're down the road. It's a continual filling that he's talking about. When he's talking about the ministry of the Holy Spirit, he's talking about a continual filling. You know, guys, we could get hung up as a church, as individuals, we could get hung up on definitions when we talk about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. I believe the Bible clearly presents there's a with, there's an in, and there's an upon. The with would be like these soldiers that they were sent to capture Jesus. And it, it tells us further in the narrative that, that they come back empty-handed and, and they say, nobody ever spoke like this guy because Jesus appealed to a part of them that was waking up. He would speak to them and they had ears to hear in a limited way. The Holy Spirit wasn't given, but when Jesus spoke and he draw crowds and people did come to faith, it was because the Holy Spirit was with them, not yet in them. 
Certainly not upon them. And so we look at that, and then at the moment of our conversion, the Holy Spirit comes in and he says, you know what? There needs to be a death in your family, and that's you. Get out of the way. Let me set up housekeeping in your heart. You need to die to self and let me express myself through you. That's where the, the, the living water begins to come through. All of a sudden, I'm thinking differently. I'm acting differently. I'm treating people differently. There is this shift inside, and I don't understand how I re retain my personality and all my own distinctives, but there is this thing that goes on. And we can get so hung up on, well, is there one baptism of the Holy Spirit or are there many? Is the difference between the filling of the Holy Spirit or is there a difference of the ministry of the Holy Spirit? And there are distinctions and there are things that I think God's word bears out, but we've got to be careful. It's like, well, I don't believe that. I'm going to go start another denomination. And that's how people divide. Life in the Spirit is not a definition. It's an experience. If you want to taste and see that the Lord is good, you want to experience Christ, experience the work of his spirit, quench your thirst with him. And it's not some crazy show. It's not some crazy circus deal where you see these people up acting goofy and crazy and it doesn't look anything like Jesus because he says here in the Gospel of John, if you have my spirit, he's going to bear witness of me. You will look like me. You're not going to look like some guy out there doing goofy things. But it's like marriage. I, I can understand a definition of marriage, but I really like being married to Stacy. I like experiencing marriage. It's the same thing with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is to be experienced, not just defined. We can get so caught up and, and hung up in definitions that we forget that he wants to live in us. He wants to bring the love of God to us and let that love be expressed through us as we deal with people around us. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. That's the work of Jesus when we come to him and we quench that eternal thirst that we might have tried all our lives to quench with other things and still might. Even as believers, we can get sidetracked, we can get off on some weird deal where we're trying to quench our thirst on whatever it is. Be careful, gang. He is the one who says, come to me and drink. I'm going to close with a couple of comments here. First, is I'm still thirsty. I'm thirsty for greater assurance from God that I'm doing as well. I'm thirsty for the future of this church. I'm thirsty for my family, those that are struggling, those that don't yet know Christ. I'm thirsty for the lost. The Lord has been giving us a thirst for these students that now the doors are opening for us to be able to truly minister to, to pour the love of Jesus into. And I'm so excited because he wants to quench their thirst with him. We look at this whole festival, this feast of tabernacles, and we see that all of it pointed to Christ. And Jesus made sure that they didn't miss it, and they still did, by and large. Proclaiming that he was the fulfillment of all that they were doing, standing up at the feast at that perfect opportunity as the fulfillment of the water from that rock. And when he said, come to me and drink, this is what one guy said. I'll read this. 
He said, there is neither harshness of command nor violence of threat in Jesus' proclamation. It is the king, meek, gentle, and loving, the Messiah, who will not break the bruised reed, who will not lift up his voice in the tone of anger, but speaks in accents of loving, condescending compassion, who now bids whoever thirsts, whosoever thirsts, come unto him and drink. And so the words have to all time remained the call of Christ to all that thirst. Whosoever, whatsoever their need and longing of soul may be. But as we listen to these words as originally spoken, we feel now how they mark that Christ's hour was indeed coming. The preparation past, the manifestation in the present, unmistakable and urgent as it was and loving and the final conflict at hand. I like that. We'll close with Revelation chapter 22, verse 17. It's in your bulletin this morning. Some of the final words of the Bible set to the 22nd chapter of Revelation is the final chapter of the New Testament. After the wrath of God has been poured out, and God has satisfied his judgment on this earth. It says this in verse 17 of chapter 22, and the spirit, talking about the Holy Spirit this morning, and the bride say, the bride being the church, come and let him who hears say, come. And let him who thirsts, come. Whoever desires, let him take of the water of life freely it's free praise God that we have a living risen Savior and Lord that still offers water spiritual drink spiritual nourishment spiritual satisfaction to each of us individually he knows you by name let's pray Father, we praise you for this brief look in your word at the Feast of Tabernacles and how Jesus is the fulfillment of all of it. And Lord, we we do praise you. We're humbled in your presence that you would go to such lengths to grab our attention, to minister to our hearts. And I pray for each one here. Lord, as you stir us, that we wouldn't walk out that door this morning and get unstirred, but that we would stay stirred up for you for the water that you want to bring into our lives, that you want to bless us with, that it would gush forth from each of us in greater measure, Lord, that we would see you as the singular object of our desire. Not all the stuff that the world offers, but that it would simply be Jesus. We praise you now. We thank you for your word. We thank you for this day. Ask your blessing upon the rest of it. And we come to you only in the name of and through the blood of Jesus and ask it all in his name. Amen. Lord, bless you and keep you and make his face to shine upon you and give you peace. Have a great day. God bless.